This is chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Let me pray, and then we'll read it through. Lord, thank you for who you are, and thank you for um, challenging our pictures of you. For those of us that have been following you for decades, you're still challenging us, still refining. We're still knowing you, getting to know you. And for those of us that are um, meeting you for the first, second, or third time, or, or fairly young in our walk with you, uh, it's so refreshing. Thank you for this. Would you keep doing it? Lord, um, I want to take on the posture of Irma's feeling of humility before we continue. That we're in the presence of someone uh, unsustained. You sustain yourself. You are the star, the famous one. And we humble ourselves before you, put ourselves in our proper place, at your feet, to listen, to watch, to learn, to just look at you. Show us more of yourself this morning, I ask, Spirit, that you would reveal Jesus to us this morning. Open every heart, help us to hear what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house... Many tax collectors and sinful people were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him, many of that sort who followed him. <laughs> and when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, maybe they didn't have the guts to ask Jesus themselves, I don't know, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not for the healthy, it's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So up to this point, Jesus has been concentrating most of his energy and his ministry around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, there are a number of villages situated around those shores that Jesus would go to and frequent and kind of on a tour and come back through and he would minister to these people as he was sweeping back and forth. He would go from village to village, preaching, teaching, healing, ministering, serving, loving, all of those things. So one day Jesus is walking and teaching around the Sea of Galilee and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax collecting table. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, is also known as Matthew in the Bible. He's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. So Levi is a Jew working for the Roman government. This is what we need to understand about tax collectors for those of you that are familiar with this. But let me broaden it out and uh, help you understand the scandal of this. Levi's a Jew working for the Roman government, collecting taxes from his own people from the, for the Romans. And because of this, you can imagine that tax collectors were viewed by the Jewish people as traitors in the highest 
degree. They were absolutely despised, absolutely hated. People don't like, well, people don't like tax collectors today. Sorry if, you, if you're here and you work for the IRS, but the, the, we typically don't like, you know, what is the two certain things in life, death and taxes? I saw a meme the other day that said, taxes remind me that death isn't all that bad. Um, But it was much worse, much, much worse in Jesus' day because the Roman government was in the Holy Land uninvited. They were an occupying force. They conquered the land and the Jewish people were their slaves in their own land. It would be like if North Korea invaded America and won and we were under their thumb and they began taxing us. A foreign government began taxing us on our own land. You can imagine the state that that would put this country in or Russia or somebody like that. You can imagine how different our circumstances would be under those kinds of circumstances and, uh, you know, add tax collecting to that idea and you can get the idea. They were absolutely hated. They, were, they conquered um, and then on top of them conquering the land, they used Jews to collect to collect taxes, they milked off the economy of the Jews to to get their own, to uh, fuel their own Roman Empire, and they used Jews to collect those taxes. So for a Jewish person to actually work for the Romans and collect taxes from their own people on on the Romans' behalf, it was the epitome of being an extortioner. And it was extortion because every tax collector got their own little Roman army to enforce what they wanted. Um, how does one become a tax collector from the Roman government? Well, you have to buy your way in. So, here's the thing. Jews were not told to, t- to collect taxes. Jews voluntarily paid their own money to establish this position. They were traitors. It was real. They were traitors. They spent their own money to get this position. The Roman governor would see how many positions for tax collecting was open, and he would would auction it off to the highest bidder. That's how it worked. But here's how it worked for the tax collector. The Roman government would tell the tax collector, "This this month, I want X amount of money from your region that you're in charge of, and the tax collector would agree to meet this quota, but he would up the ante. And how much money, if there was anything over his quota, the tax collector kept it for himself. So they were swindlers. They really were. And they were milking off of their own people. This is the worst kind of extortion. The worst kind of being a traitor. So tax collectors were getting very, very wealthy. And they had, had like I said, their own appointed Roman army on their own side whenever they needed to enforce their prices. So they were given power. They had... No incentive whatsoever to give the taxpayer a break because any time they, they could overcharge a taxpayer the money, the money went right into their own pocket. They had every incentive to keep the racket up. And they had absolute power to do this. If the taxpayer didn't want to pay, you would turn them over to the Roman soldier who was sitting right over their own shoulder. Right there. So that's why, now you can imagine why they're hated we would hate that kind of a person too. It'd be like one of our own. Can you imagine your kids coming home one day and saying, hey, I got a new job. Oh, really? What are you doing? Oh, I'm going to collect taxes for the Russians. 
And I, I emptied out my savings to get this position. And I get my own little army to make it happen. Would that be your idea of your kids' great, you know, your dreams come true for your kids? It's, that's what we're dealing with. It's a sweet arrangement from the standpoint of making money, but not a sweet arrangement from the standpoint of making friends. You were, a tax collector was a total outcast, and for legitimate reasons, reasons that I'm sure we can understand. They were a total outcast. You couldn't be, in fact, you couldn't be a witness in a court of law if you were a tax collector. They were often excommunicated from the temple and synagogues. In other words, you were separated from God. That's what that meant. You couldn't worship God. You had no right of standing before God, according to the religious rulers. You were regarded as sinful, as sinful could be, and often shunned from the community. Not only that, it'd be nice. We're not talking about an independent, individualistic society. We're talking about a cultural society. We're, or we're talking about a, um, a, a familial society. Not where only you disgraced, but your entire family was disgraced by society. Not only would you lose your friends, but your children. Oh, your dad does this. Your children would be shunned. Your wife would be shunned with no social outlet. You can imagine the consternation this caused within a family, within a home. All you would have is each other, and that is if your wife and children didn't despise you also for putting them through all that. And they couldn't just easily divorce. That was harder then. They had, to stay, they had to stay in there and wear the black mark, the scarlet letter. Often tax collectors were the richest and the loneliest people in society and community. They were gaining riches at the expense of friendship and society and that was the price they were willing to pay. They had counted the cost. They signed up for this. They were not forced to do this. Now, it's to this kind of guy, this is what's so shocking and scandalous about Jesus. We're watching Jesus here, right? It's to this kind of guy that Jesus is drawn to. That's the kind of person that Jesus finds himself drawn to. We are talking in here, we're talking about Jesus. He does things that we would not think to do, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I heard a, a, an analogy of the U.S. Marines um, by an Afghanistan person saying that other armies, when they come, the Taliban will, will shoot at them and they'll scatter but we always know the U.S. Marines because when they're shot at, they turn toward the bullet and they start marching toward. They start going into it. It's counterintuitive. When we see somebody that is a disgrace to us, that we disagree with, that we find disgusting, that we have no respect for, that we don't like anymore, we find their opinions disgusting. Normally what we do is we shun, we turn away. Sometimes it's even almost involuntary. It's just, it's a, it's a it's reaction. Jesus here, what we're, we're watching Jesus. Here he walks by the worst of the worst kind of a person, the worst of the worst kind of outcast, and he's drawn to Matthew. He's drawn to Levi. 
Why would he ever pick a traitor to be on his team? This would have been, you have to understand, this would have been shocking, scandalous. It would have been a, a major problem in, in sev- in several, from several angles. This would have damaged Jesus' reputation. This would have put Jesus' integrity at tremendous risk. This was not a good political move, not a good PR move. He couldn't, he couldn't been known as a, as a wannabe rabbi and pick traitors to be on his team. Some could have seen this move as even um, approving of what Levi was doing. That Jesus was saying, I'm for this. I'm for this kind of capitulation, this kind of cowardice. Is Jesus in favor of the Roman government? And yet, Jesus cared more about Levi and Matthew and his fallenness and his brokenness and his stuckness than even his own reputation. We're learning about Jesus this morning, aren't we? Interesting stuff, this Jesus. Everyone else hated Levi, and I mean that, hated. And now, I think after I've given you some historical background, with maybe good reason, he's someone that we could find hatred in in our own hearts. Everything he stood for was something that the people there despised, but Jesus loved him and called him out of that lifestyle. Jesus didn't let his own reputation get in the way of saving somebody. Now, I'm sure the, others, the other disciples were um, shocked. Can you imagine? They were shocked that Jesus would, would pick this guy. But they had to have been even more more shocked, maybe, or equally shocked at Levi's response. Look what what verse 14 very simply says. He said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. There's a lot more that goes, that is, there's a lot of meaning in those, that little sentence. Immediately, Levi gets up, leaves his money what he had literally given everything for, including his character, his integrity, his legacy, his children's reputations. He's paid a high price for this career, for money. And he gets up and he leaves it all and he follows Jesus. There's not even a pause, according to Mark. There's not even a pause to consider if he should or not. Jesus commands, the guy gets up and follows, just like that, leaves it all behind. No doubt, Levi had heard of Jesus. I'm sure he was, uh, Jesus at this point is becoming a household name around the Sea of Galilee, and he respects him. So he, when he hears that Jesus wants him, that was enough for him. Enough for him to leave it all behind. I mean, we have to respect this a little bit about Levi. How many of us would, after working hard years, putting in days, hours, work, giving up so much, maybe family time and everything else for maybe uh, your retirement or your pension or whatever it might be, your, your, your future. How many would just give that up? Matthew saw, so the only way that works is if something greater than the, you know, it's a, it's a switching type of a thing. There's no vacuum here. Something greater than what you're already valuing trumps that value. That's how, that's how capitalism works. That's how the economy works in a free market. It, it, the, you buy what you value. 
I mean, it's really, it's really it shows, and the economy, um, anybody that's taken economics, especially um, Austrian-style economics, knows that the economy tells us of where the society's heart's at. It doesn't judge whether it's right or wrong. It just tells us what people are valuing. If you, I mean, you go into a store and you see your favorite box of cereal, Lucky Charms, let's say, naming nobles, <laughs> you know, pure, unadulterated sugar, and the price is $5.67. If you buy that box of cereal, you are saying that I prize this box of cereal more than I do $5.67. And the people selling that box of cereal is saying we prize $5.67 more than we do this box of cereal. And so we trade. It's a value system. We trade it. I'm willing to go without to trade this. It tells where your heart's at. That's why, you know, we say when we, we talk about money, it's the quickest way to know where your heart really is. Just look at your uh, ledger. It'll tell you where, you where your values are. And this is remarkable. Here's Matthew. He gets up. He leaves it all behind, what he might have been working for, what he, might, what he, what he had already traded so much for, and Jesus, is, Jesus captures Matthew's imagination more than that so that he's willing to trade for Jesus. He's ready to lose it all and trade for Jesus. That, my friends, is conversion of the heart. So, we talk about conversion of confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That's one way of putting it. That's so, if we just think of it in those terms, it's so dogmatic, it's so, doc, it's so doctrinal, and it's important doctrine. But here we're talking about an actual exchange a trade of the heart, um, a transaction of the heart. And here's what I will say about this story, because I think it's a precedent when it comes to being a Christian and when it comes to winning others for Christ. The only way anybody becomes a Christian, the only reason you're sitting here if you're a Christian is because Jesus captured the value of your imagination. He captured the value of your heart Yes, you understood a doctrine. Yes, you understood a theological principle. But more than that, 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 that's at least what should have happened. It's not salvation in Christianity is not less than that. More than that, there's a transaction of the heart where your imagination was captured by the person of Jesus Christ. And at some point... There is reason to question your relationship with Jesus, or if, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if there's not a moment where you realize, okay, he's worth everything. He just walked into the room, the room of my heart, the room of my mind. He walked into the room, and I'm realizing, like with Irma, I'm in the presence of someone great. I'm in the, I'm, I've got to humble myself. This, I can't walk away from this person and just go, oh, that was cool, Jesus, and walk away and go on about my life. He demands a change. Either I'm going to walk away or I'm going to trade everything. That's how it works. It's this all or nothing kind of thing here. Matthew got that. He understood. There was my life before Jesus, and then there's my life after Jesus. There's a, there, it demands a change. See, Jesus does not walk into our lives as a politician vying for some attention. Do you understand that? That's really important for us to understand. Jesus doesn't walk into our lives, into our hearts, into our 
time and to our priorities and say, hey, add me to your priority list or put in a, a little bit more for me. Or, you know, Matthew, keep doing what you're doing, but maybe, you know, spend 15 more minutes with me in the morning with prayer. No, no, no. Matthew realized this Jesus is king. The only response to a king is to bow, take out your sword, bow your knee, and say, command me. I'm completely yours. That's who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with someone with that kind of moral authority and weight when he walks into the room. In other words, this should be really clarifying. It blows away all these other options. He demands a response and that kind of response. Levi could not easily return to tax collecting after that. This would have been a, I mean, you know, he paid a high price to get in. It's not like, in some ways, Matthew's paying more of a price than the other disciples. You know that. The other disciples are fishermen, some of them or fishermen, they could go back to their fishing business. In fact, some of them did. When Jesus died, they went back and became, they took up fishing again. Matthew could not do that. He paid to get into the Roman government. He leaves that spot. It's taken by somebody else. It's taken by the next highest bidder. He loses his shot. I mean, this was a huge risk for him. Not easy to go, oh, I'll take up my post again. And let me just add this little piece of historical uh, context here. There's archaeological evidence that fish taken from the Sea of Galilee were taxed directly. Did you know that? Here, the text says that Jesus saw Levi at the table, the booth, when Jesus was, quote, where? Walking by the sea. In other words, Levi must have had a tax table near the water to tax the fish directly being caught by the fishermen. In other words, it's very, very, very possible that Peter and John and James were paying taxes directly to Matthew with their fishing business. It's very, I can't say that dogmatically, but not, not, far, from the, uh, from an, not far from the stretch of imagination. That these guys would, and I think if you've ever watched, has anybody watched the show The Chosen? There's kind of a, and I recommend that you do, um, season one shows how Peter, James, and John come into contact with Jesus and Matthew, and there is an animosity between, that they put into this TV series of, uh, between Matthew and Peter and James and John. They hate the guy because they're paying taxes directly from him. He's coming to get their money from their fishing and their, their families are going under, they're kind of, you know, and they just despise the guy. It's artistic license, but maybe, but it's very possible that that's how it was. So I love this about Jesus. He doesn't get into who likes who or the drama going around on him. He doesn't get his guys aside and say, hey guys, huddle up, this is what I'm gonna do. You're gonna have to put your stuff aside. None of that. He knows that they will be together in him. He's there, so it doesn't matter about all the differences. All the past and hatred and animosity is a moot point now, now that they're fellowshiping with Jesus. So here's what I'm trying to say. His cadre of guys that are forming around him, we're, also, we're meeting Jesus, but we're also meeting the people that he picked. You could not pick a more disharmonized group. They had reason to hate each other, to bicker with each other. They had prejudices against each other. 
They had different political views. We know, we know that from uh, how the text describes in, in other gospels, how the text describes some of the disciples, that they were part of some really zealous religious sects that were trying to overthrow the Roman government even illegally if, if possible. There was anarchists and all. These are the people that Jesus is surrounding himself with. This, in other words, this is a microcosm of what? Someone say the church. The church, yes, you're right. This is a microcosm of the church. In other words, we tend to think that followers of Jesus are completely homogenous in every way, that that's what unity means. Who thinks that? Not, uh, you, I think, didn't we? No. A lot of people do. And so we get bent out of shape. Look, I say the more diversity, the better. The more people of different thought, because we are unified under Jesus. He's the one that made this whole group work. Without Jesus, none of this would have worked. So in other words, here's what we have in the followers of Jesus. We have people with all different kinds of walks of life, all different kinds of financial situations, all different kinds of political views, all different kinds, very opinionated people. You have got people all coming together because one man has captured all of their imaginations, just like Levi. He now, because of Jesus, Levi now fits in this group. Without Jesus, Levi would not fit in this group. With Jesus, he does fit in this group. We, we as a church are not here together because we all live in Seattle or because we're Northwesterners or because we are, I mean, whatever, you know, name, name it, because we're Seahawks fans or because we're, you know, I'm a, you know we're, we're, we all use PC or we all use Mac or we're all, or whatever it is. All of those things, we, a lot of us here would not fit. The reason we're here is because of Jesus. Period. Our church would disband, and rightfully so, without Jesus. This would not work without Jesus. And the reason I'm just going off about this is because this gives us a direction on how wide to cast our nets. We're not fishing when it comes to wanting to tell people about Jesus. We're not fishing for men and women based on a narrow view of who should be a part of Christianity. Oh, you'd fit. You'd work out in our group really well. You're more center right or center left. Perfect. We, we cast our nets wide, knowing that Jesus is what we want to capture people's imagination, not our politics or our views or our, however we're interpreting the whole pandemic thing or all of these other things. We come together as different as we are under the banner of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes us unique. The most unique group, community in, on this planet. It makes us unique and it makes us family. How people so different can be so one, just like, any, like a family. Those of you that have many children, you know how this works. It's so weird how they can be so different. And yet they still have your name. They're still, what makes a family? 
They're under the banner of your name. They belong, and yet they're so different. Personalities are different. Some kids are more like him. Some kids are more like her. Some kids are like, where did you even come from? You know, it's just, it's so, so vastly, vastly different. And you know what makes a family for real? Not just a name. You know what else makes a family? Experience. The same experiences. Brothers and sisters grow up going through the same story, moving to the same houses, leaving another house, sharing the same resources, sharing the same cupboards and the same food, sharing the same spaces, sharing everything, shared experiences, the ups and downs of the family, the secret things of the family that are private, all of those things, it's the, that's what makes Family, what is the experience that make you and I family? We are all like Matthew. And someone came in, regardless of politics and all the other ways that we differentiate people and classify people, above all of that, Jesus came in and he captured my soul, he captured my heart, and he saved me. I was stuck giving my life for things that, and paying such a huge price for things that were dead ends. And Jesus came in and showed me, he captured me. That's why I'm here. I'm not here because I'm more conservative or more Democrat. Or, I'm not here because of any of those things. I'm here because Jesus got me. And that's what makes you and I brothers, brothers and sisters. That. Are you following me? Is that, does that make sense? That makes us special. That makes us unique. It makes us family. Let's move on. Look, look at verse 15. Look what else happens. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. So he's eating. This is something that Jesus is seen to do a lot, not just because he's human. It's highlighted for another reason that I hope to dip into a little bit. He's dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many, the, the implication is many of that sort that all followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they're shocked. They're freaking out. You, you know, don't imagine a tax collector and Pharisee. I mean, they were, they were corrupt for sure. But don't imagine them as being abnormal. Feel their feelings. When you let your imagination feel that they see something that's out of the norm, that's socially unacceptable, that a leader, a rabbi is doing... I mean, think about when you find out something that a religious leader has done or a big leader has done, a president or some, some kind of that makes them look dubious. And what's that feeling? That, ooh. You're going to brace yourself. You feel that. This is what they're feeling. The Pharisees and the tax collectors, they see, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes, they see Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And I would say, involuntarily, a repulsion comes up in them. A warning, a, we would say, I got a flag when I saw you. I mean, imagine how we confront each other. When I saw you doing that, I just got flags in my spirit. Are you okay? I mean, imagine that, but more so. An impropriety that Jesus is doing, and it makes him go, ooh, is this guy a sheep? Is this guy, or excuse me, a wolf in sheep's clothing? Is this guy deceiving people? Is this, are we seeing his true colors eating with these kinds of people? They're suspicious. That's what's going on here in, in their guts. This is what's going on. 
They're not used to this. Now that Levi is following Jesus, he wants to use his resources and wealth to bless Jesus, so he offers his house for a party. The idea behind eating is that it was a joyful celebration. And so not only do we see that Jesus is drawn to tax collectors and sinners, now we're seeing in the same text that tax collectors and sinners are drawn to Jesus. There's a safety to him for the worst kind of people. Think of that. There's a sense about Jesus that I'm okay with him. And yet a challenge as well. So Matthew decides to throw this great big dinner with all of his new friends. And immediately Matthew, this, this outcast, is seen in a social setting. You know what this is. This is redemption. Matthew, this guy that, you know, friendless, all of a sudden is having probably something that he is not used to having, and that is a, a joyful meal with people. With friends. And I imagine that there's laughter and that there's joy. That's what a meal is. And in the ancient world, they really understood this. That a meal was not just um, utilitarian. I'm just doing something to make my physical body move, like putting fuel in my system. It wasn't so scientific like that. In, in the Jewish system, in, in the ancient Near East, still to this day, uh, eating a meal with someone is, a, is great intimacy. And you know what I mean? And I use intimacy... Um, in the sense that you are sharing pleasure with somebody else. When Kristen makes her world-famous banana bread, and I go over to her house, and the smell fills my entire being, and we, it comes straight out of the oven, and she's just tried something new for the topping, and we slice it, and the steam's coming off, and we're sitting across from each other, and we both take a bite and we both look at each other like, what do you think? What, you know what's happening? We're bonding over pleasure. That's what's happening. We're becoming beautiful friends over pleasure. In the ancient world, to invite somebody over to your house to eat was an invitation to enjoy pleasure together. It was a very intimate situation. It wasn't just like, hey, you hungry? Come on in and we'll throw some food in your face. It was more of come in, sup with me, sit with me. I'm going to enjoy you. You're going to enjoy me as we enjoy something in common together. We're going to ingest something together. It was a joyous celebration. It was a sign of great solidarity, union, friendship. So they were very picky about who they ate with. It was a big deal to be invited over to someone's house. It was a big deal. It meant, wow. You really want to like be good buds, be good friends. And Jesus is feeling right at home with these tax collectors. There are two groups that you would never guess would go together in the same room. And they're here. In society, these two groups hated each other. This would be like Trump supporters and progressives going out to share a meal together and laughing and getting along. We, you know, that doesn't happen 
these days. But as awkward as this might have been, it doesn't bother Jesus in the least. There he is together with them, loving all of them. And as a matter of fact, they are all so drawn to Jesus that it says that they, that they, they decide to follow him. They're followers of Jesus now. This is the kind of crowd that Jesus had around him and that he willingly associated himself with. He's not doing this secretly. This is out loud in front of everybody. That the, he's like saying, let the Pharisees gawk. Let the people wonder. Let the rumors start. I am saying, I am, this is, again, we're learning about Jesus. This is his, this is who he is. It's not just a, uh, campaign that he's running he didn't decide on this angle okay when i go to earth i'm gonna really shock him because i'm gonna choose this mechanism that they won't expect no this is who he is it's flowing from him it's something to be impressed with they could see that he loved them and that he truly cared he wasn't trying he wasn't trying to get anything from them but genuinely trying to love them and this changed everything for them. So people went, to, went into that dinner as sinners and they left as followers of Jesus. Think of that. They went into the dinner as sinners. They left as followers of Jesus. But here's where the controversy comes in. Jesus is showing himself a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What a scandal. These are thieves, traitors, extortioners and Jesus is giving fellowship to them in other words Jesus isn't just nice listen guys Jesus isn't just nice to sinful people like says hi and waves or on the on-ramp to the freeway rolls down his window and says God bless you and drives away this is next level Jesus hangs out with them He's talking with them. He's eating with them. He's making eye contact with them. He's asking them questions about their story. They're telling him about who he is. He's enjoying their company, and they know it. They can see, this rabbi is enjoying my company. This is what's going on. And the sinners knew this and responded to Jesus' love and decided to follow him. This is the evangelism model, I guess, but it's just straight out of the kind of, and here's the thing, I hate to say model because we try to make these evangelism models. This is what I'm trying to, what Mark is trying to show us here is this is not a model, this is who Jesus is. And when we become followers of Jesus, it changes who we are. It's not, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, so now I have to adopt this model to go out with this special angle and go get people for Jesus. No, it, it's, I'm changed now, I'm different, and I find myself love, being drawn to certain kinds of people now, more and more and more, because he was drawn to someone like me. Are you seeing what's happening here? These are, we're working on nuances together. There's nothing new, lightning, you know, uh, huge that, we're cha that you, you probably don't already know. But there's nuance work that we're doing here through the book of Mark that makes things very different. Can people tell by how we're following Jesus that he's, that he's a friend of sinners? There's a wonderful 
hard-hitting question for all of us. Can people tell by how we're following Jesus that he's a friend of sinners? Do we show everyone the love and respect that God has bestowed on them, not just by being nice, but leaning in? And there's plenty of opportunity all around us. We're working on some things. The, um, this church, Emmanuel Church, will be opening up a, uh, their shelter to men here on November 1st where, where Jameson's working on ways for us to get in there, to help out, to, to activate this kind of faith. Because why? Because this is what we should do? No, it's because of who Jesus is and who he's making us into. Christianity was, wasn't meant to be a subculture where we never talk to an unbeliever. We were meant to love all people just like Jesus does. And yes, they're very different than how we think. Now we've also seen how this wonderful characteristic of Jesus has been abused and twisted. So I, 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 I want to highlight that too to bring some balance here. Maybe you've seen a demonstration with people marking, marching down the street that says Jesus, just love, Jesus loves me just the way I am. And theologically, that's, that sign is true at face value. Jesus does love them just the way they are, but Jesus loves us even in the midst, Jesus loves us even in the midst of our sin, but he loves us too much to, to leave us there too. <laughs> he's, he's, he's trying to set us free. He's trying to set Matthew free from this tax collecting bondage that he's in, this materialistic idolatry that he's in. He's trying to release him out of that. Not just keep them in there and say, I love you guys just the way you are. Keep it up. Um, my family, uh, on my father's side, they are not Christians. And I remember as I was trying to minister to them at one point, and they're, I mean, they're um, not just not Christians in how they believe, but they're very not Christians in how they act and on all of those types of things. And they know I'm a pastor, and one of my cousins said a, a bad word and said, oh, I'm sorry. And then my uncle said, he doesn't care. doesn't matter. And he just proceeds to say this string of vile things in front of me. And he goes, see, look, he didn't even flinch. Because Jesus loves us no matter what. And I thought, hmm, I'm off the mark here. So I had to say, hey, my, loved, my loving uncle, I do love you just the way you are but I think the way you are is hurting yourself and I hope Jesus helps you find a way out. Suck the air out of the room a little bit. But I just felt like in my, as a litmus test here, I knew that, okay, that's not, that's not exactly right. If I'm to the point where I'm so loving and I, I mean, love is, God is love, so I think you know what I mean by that term. But if I'm so accepting that people think, oh, yeah, I don't have to change at all. That's not, love brings conviction. Love wants to change. Love seeks to set free from bondage, from things that are hurting people, see. But I'm, if I'm to the point that I'm using love, quote unquote, as a bully hammer to crane people into believing what I believe through shame and that type of thing, I'm, that's also off the mark. So there's this balance here that Jesus has that we see in Matthew, Jesus has this balance of loving him and this loving being so acceptant that it sets him free and pulls him out of harmful patterns and harmful behaviors. These people understood that. 
You guys, the idea behind this church is not to do our own thing and then shout to the world, hey, stop by if you guys want to. We can't do that, you guys. We can't. We can't. No, the idea, that we, that the idea is that we come and are recharged here on Sunday mornings and in our home groups and those types of things so we can go out as missionaries to serve a broken world. And several of you are doing that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Several of you are helping your flatmates and roommates and your, your family friends and, and you're very involved in people's lives in that way. And we want to come alongside as a church and partner with you in that and help as much as we can for you to keep ministering the, the love of Jesus in those ways. Notice the complaint. We're, we're almost done here. Notice the complaint in verse 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, here's Jesus' mentality. This is, how, this is how Jesus thinks. This is what came out of his brain. This is out of who he is. It's not a canned line or a very well-crafted speech with his campaign manager. No, this is straight out of his heart. Jesus says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come. We talked about a guy with intention. Jesus knows why he came and why he did not come. He's a laser beam. I did not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, that's what I'm doing eating here. This is how my heart naturally plays itself out into reality. And that's how you can tell the difference between a campaign speech and a way someone actually thinks. A campaign speech, you say something, but then you, your, your life it, you know, doesn't match up with it. There's cognitive dissonance, they call it. Your life doesn't match what you say you believe. But when you, when you say what you believe, that's really what you believe, right from your heart, your life, in fact, you're, well, let me say it this way, you are truly living the way you really believe. Maybe not the way you say. But your life, what you do, what you do not do, reflects your true worldview. And Jesus here, his mission and his life are perfectly matched. He's saying, I have come, this is straight from my heart, I have come to call the sick. And because of that, I cannot square with who I am. I can't be true to myself, Jesus would say, of who I am unless I eat with these wonderful people that I love so much. In other words, I can't be true. There'd be a dishonesty, a discord in my own self if I did not eat with these people. That's why I say this is who he is. You can tell it's who he is because his life is matching it. How refreshing is that? (laughs) Jesus is saying, I'm deeply drawn to sinful people the way a physician is drawn to sick people. Can you imagine, would you, what would you think of a doctor who did, what would, you, what would you think of a doctor who really didn't want to be around sick people? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Someone that went through all the schooling and went through all the stuff and they're like, oh, I just, I just, I'd rather, I'd just rather not. Why did you go into that pr- profession? Why did you spend all that money? I, I don't know, it seemed interesting. I just don't really want to actually be with people. Just the healthy people, please. Send the sick people to the hospital. Send me healthy people. 
No, Jesus, he wasn't just polite to sinners. He eats with them. Okay, last point. In the Bible, there, I've already alluded to this, but I have, to, um, I have to give you some context here. In the Bible, there are a surprising amount of snapshots where Jesus is eating. And this has raised the eyebrows of scholars now for uh, hundreds of years. They, they now see a very um, incredible message behind this. This story is one of them. Let me give you a few other examples. The very first public event that he performed a miracle at in, in John was at a wedding feast where he miraculously turns water to wine. Having, having to do with a feast. First miracle. You, um, scholars call that his inaugural minis, uh, uh, miracle. You know when a new president becomes president and he gives an inaugural speech, it's like super important because it outlines who he is, what his administration is going to be about, his agenda and all those things. So everyone tunes in to the inaugural speech. This is Jesus' inaugural ministry and it has to do with eating at a feast. Super interesting. In the parable of the prodigal son, the climax of the story is a banquet. He was accused of being a quote-unquote glutton. That's how much the guy ate. That's how much Jesus ate. He was a glutton. He's a foodie because he ate so much. That means of all the things that people could think of to insult him, <laughs> of all the things they could have drawn out to really just send a zinger at him, they thought they picked food because that's what he was known for. This guy's eating and eating with certain kinds of people. Well, here's a glutton. A wine bibber, they call them, whatever that even means today. That's King James for you. A drunkard, I think, is what that means. Here in our text, he's accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. The night before Jesus was killed, he was eating this historical meal with his disciples that now inaugurates a meal that we eat every Sunday to remember Jesus. He picked eating. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to build this statue and look at me once a week. He said, here's how I want you to remember me. Eat often in remembrance of me. Really interesting. When he rose from the dead, what did he do? He had breakfast waiting on the shore while his disciples were fishing. Let's cook breakfast over this nice campfire. It's just like a dream. Right out of Pendleton magazine or something. The story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples also culminates and they, they're able to see who he is when, he, when they eat a meal together. And over and over again, Jesus explicitly, here's what, here's what catches scholars' eyes, over and over again, Jesus explicitly ties his, what they call table ministry. He does it so much that scholars now call it his ministry. He has a table ministry. <laughs> and what, what catches their eye is because he's always tying his table ministry to the coming kingdom. In other words, he's saying, this is what it's like. This is what the coming kingdom will be like. Now, if the action, eating, is a manifestation of the message, and I think it is, what is the message? For one thing, Christianity is a joyful feast. That's what he's saying. And it fits our story here. Matthew and these sinners and these tax collectors were just brought out of bondage from shame, guilt, social rejection, all of these things. They're brought out under the care of a loving Messiah. 
And so what's the appropriate thing to do when you're brought out of that kind of a life, that kind of a death life, a death spiral? What do you do when you're saved? This is what it's talking about, being saved. What do you do? You, you, you feast. You have everybody over. There's joy. You have some wine. You share some food. Do you see? This is, he's saying this is Christianity. It's a joyful feast. It's a banquet. It's a celebratory feast. It's a roaring festive joy. That's Christianity. Not, me, me, neck me, it's not that. It's not that. It's a joyful feast. It's roaring joy. Why is this feast joyful? Because these sinners have no right to be there. And yet they are there. And here's... Here brings up a very interesting philosophical principle about Christianity, and that is, in a way, we're sorry for our sins. We're sorry for the junk that we've been in. We're sorry that we've been so stuck, but we also are happy about it because we needed it to bring us to Jesus. Anybody with a hard testimony gets this point. It's this weird thing. I've heard it in so many people's testimonies, including my own, and they're almost shy and hesitant to say it because it sounds so weird. I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry. I've heard it so many times, so many times. And I'm sorry for what I did, but you know what I mean? In a way, I'm not. And you flesh it out with them, and it's because it brought me here. It brought me to my knees. I would not have known the joy of the feast without my pain and lostness. See, one of the biggest uh, critics about or critiques of Christianity is it's so depressing. Original sin. I was, on the, I was on a plane next to this really smart person. And when I say smart, I mean smart because he really thought he was smart. And he was reading this book. And, you know, you can't help but, eaves, you know, drop some eaves on the plane. Eaves drops, you know. And so he's talking about, he's reading this book on original sin. And this lady next to him who's, very, um, and at first I was thinking, oh, maybe he's a Christian or something, you know. And this lady next to him, who wants to be social, said, what are you reading? And he says, oh, it's about original sin and the problems with the Christian doctrine of original sin. He goes, I'm a psychologist I, 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 for a living, and, you know, one of the biggest things I have to deal with is the people's problems with depression because they come in thinking they're so evil and so bad. And that's one of the big hurdles we have to help people get around is this horrible Christian doctrine that's put in our society of original sin. So I couldn't help it. <laughs> and I lobbed over there. I don't think there'd be hope without original sin. I think, we, I think Christianity knows we actually need sin. And, so, and second of all, you said that People have a starting point of original sin. That might be true with people, but it's not with Christianity. You know, in the Bible, in the very first pages, there was no sin. It was perfect. And mankind is imago Dei, made in the image of God. That makes mankind sacred. Really special. So Christians have a very high view of themselves, as well as a very realistic view about themselves as well. 
It's a long plane ride. There was some bantering. He was, so he was, it was me, aisle, lady, him. So we were like kind of lobbing over the top of this woman. And um, eventually it was decided that I was rude for, for dropping some eaves. So I, I, uh, I exited. I felt like I had, I had dropped my problems in his, in his philosophy sufficiently. So I went back to reading my own book. But that's, the, that's one of the biggest critiques about Christianity, you see is that, oh, the Bible says you're sinful or, or sick. Jesus, he came for the sick. We're sick as humans. Oh, I just, that's such a problematic, we're sick. But you, you understand, who are, the, who are the people who could not be a part of this feast? Someone say the Pharisees. Why could the Pharisees not be a part of that feast? Because they thought they were righteous. That's right, Renee. They didn't think they were sick. Without sin, they lost access to the joy. You see, Christianity, we win by losing. Do you understand that? It's so counterintuitive to our culture because we, we have to prove ourselves and rites of passage and, and look what I've become and look what I've done and, and all of these types of things. Christianity says, no, 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 no. Lean into your sickness and you will find joy and life. And it, it's weird to the culture. So was the cross. Wait, you have a king who won by dying? In a little bit, we'll see Peter's reaction. Uh, I shouldn't steal my own thunder because this whole book is Peter's perspective. But Peter's going to come and say, you know, Jesus is going to say, who do you guys think that I am? And Peter's going to say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, baby. And you're going to go to Jerusalem. We're on our way to Jerusalem. It's what divides Mark. The second half of Mark is this march to Jerusalem from the statement, from Peter's confession. That's the, that marks the turning point of Mark. And he goes into Jerusalem, and Peter's like, yeah, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to take up the, the throne of King David. And Jesus says, okay, you're right, I am the Son of God. You're right, we are going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to a throne, I'm going to a cross. Arch! And Peter says, don't you talk like that. He rebukes Jesus for that part. And at that point, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to win by losing. I'm going to have power through weakness. Do you see what I'm saying? It's so hard for us, though. Paul wrote to the church in Corinthians, look at you guys, there's not many of you that were smart. Not many of you are special. There's not many of you that are very strong. Not many of you that could survive in this world that could think, you know, all of those things. You're not this perfect picture of this self-made human being, this American dream type of a picture. You are weak, and it's precisely because of your weakness that you're invited to the feast. Think of the Old Testament picture of this in Samuel. Do you remember? Uh, here's King David. He takes the throne. And David is looking for someone from the house of Saul, his enemies, that he can bless. Do you remember the story? And he finds this cripple, the son of Saul, who's a cripple, named, a really awesome name, Mephibosheth. I was almost going to name Noble that. Just kidding. I would never do that. 
Mephibosheth, when, when he was just a baby when, Jesus, when uh, David became king, and when his, his maid, his nanny, heard that David had become king, the, 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 uh, the protocol when a new kingdom took over was the, the new king would slaughter everyone in the household or even associated with the old king's family. So there would be no rivalries to the throne. That was the standard protocol. She hears that Saul and Jonathan are dead and David becomes king. She grabs Mephibosheth, you know, throws some clothes in a suitcase, shuts it, grabs Mephibosheth and runs. And and somehow as she was running with him, she drops him. And this baby falls and he becomes a lifelong cripple because of this. And he goes into hiding. He grows up with this crippling debilitation and David finds him and says from now on you will always eat at my table you will always eat at my table as one of my own sons he says as one of my own sons in other words David adopts a fallen broken cripple to eat a meal At his table, as long as he lives, you're always welcome at my table. It's our story. I get a little choked up because as a human being myself, I've got more issues than a newsstand. (laughs) I'm broken in my heart. And I'm learning that I have this access to joy and peace and love, the more I I embrace my weaknesses. And it's so hard because I want to prove myself, I want to become this, and I realize, oh, no, I get access to joy through my weakness. Because that's what Jesus did, that's the story of the cross. And that's the story that Matthew learned that day. That's the great lesson he learned that day. He could not save himself. And every time we come on Sundays, we reenact that story. You're all the one testimony that we all have in common. Sure, you're t- some of you might have been tax collectors. Other of you might have been extortioners. Some of you might have been snobby, morally goody-two-shoe people. Those things are all different. But the one thing we all have in common is right here. Someone saved us and we couldn't save ourselves and that's why we are one this morning. We all have the story of Levi. 